to a JAA meeting. This fine woman was leading there. Um, it's been my privilege to watch her continue to grow, to settle in Toledo, be unsettled in Toledo. <laughs> to having met her sister tonight through the Al-Anon lead. And with that, um, from the primary purpose group on Monday night, Daryl the please come to the podium. Thank you. My name is Daryl, and I am an alcoholic. <laughs> and I'm feeling a little bit competitive. <laughs> One of my character defects is flying out all over. Anyway, it might help to get my humility back on track if we all um, who care to say the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you. I'd like to start out just reading something um, from the 12 and 12 and uh, meditating before I um, came over to pick up my sister tonight. I wanted to just share with you just the first paragraph of step one. Who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that glass in hand, we have warped our minds to such an obsession for destructive drinking that only an act of providence can remove it from us. No other kind of bankruptcy is like this one. Alcohol now be becomes the rapacious creditor, bleeds us of all self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands. As you heard earlier when my sister was speaking, I grew up in a family where the myth of powerfulness was ingrained into us. That if you just did things right, whatever that is, if you just did things right, bad things wouldn't happen. And if bad things did happen, it was because you did something wrong. I grew up watching my parents drug and drink alcohol and came to the conclusion that I was never going to be like them. I was the... Um, Confronted one in the, of the children in the family, I would stand and scream at them, you people are crazy. You're acting crazy. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to live here anymore. And no matter what the physical and emotional consequences of that behavior was, I kept saying it. And the problem was being that kind of confrontiveness and the results of it, though, led me to not feel very powerful. It was defeating behavior. Because I wasn't confronting things in a healthy way. I couldn't. I was a child. All I know is that their battles, the behavior that was modeled for me, their battles and then drinking and their battling and then more drinking and then their battling and nothing ever changed. And... I decided that I was going to get out of there as soon as I can. 
And the first way to get out of there was through school and playing, which I wasn't very good at. I was too preoccupied with all the stuff that was going home, I realize now. And I was the, the kid that tried to hide her grade card because it was pretty bad. And the teachers at all right over on the left side, um, Daryl fails to see how to do things and to follow through. So I would get grounded forever. So my desire to get out of the house was squelched some. And I grew up thinking that I wasn't very smart and that I wasn't very intelligent and just feeling really powerless. So I tried to overcompensate um, by having, I guess, illusions of being powerful and how I was going to be once I got out of that situation. Um, so my grades in school were pretty uninspired, but I did find an outlet for myself in sports. I did enjoy playing softball and basketball, and that is one of the positive ways that I got out of the house a bit. Where Diane escaped to her friend's house, um, I unfortunately was grounded a lot and spent a lot of time at home. <laughs> and I was really the brunt of a lot of mother's anger. And I think in part now and I, is the understanding that I think even as a child I was showing signs that I was probably going to be gay. In that I was a god-awful tomboy. I, Diana's right, we shared a room, we had bunk beds, and my holsters were on the... Hanging from the bed, and um, I had to have my Roy Rogers, Dale Evans, everything, and she had these doll things and her makeup stuff, and she had this, this, this god-awful table that was, you know, you'd put makeup on, it had a mirror on it, she'd sit there and do her thing, and um, you couldn't ask for two more different people and two more different ways of reacting to the family craziness. I think it was almost a perfect split down, you know, of all the codependent little labels they have for us. I, I think she definitely and I just split off and said, okay, I'll be this one, I'll be the aggressor, I'll be this, I'll be that, you be that, the other. And anyway, that, that, that sports really did save a lot of it. And Diane's being gone in a way kind of helped things. But what it was is I really do believe mother, a lot of mothers concern and, and, and fathers too probably about me as a person. And it was all under the table. Because as a child I recognized, and God knows how you know these things, but I, I just knew I wasn't heterosexual. Diane was talking about baby dolls and getting husbands and, and dating and as on up, and I could have cared less. And about somewhere around third or fourth grade, I got all of my hair cut off because I got tired of being the Indian all the time because the Indians are the ones that got shot dead and left there. Pummeled. <laughs> um, and I got all of my hair cut off, and I took some of my dad's Brill Cream. I don't know if Diane remembers this, but I took this Brill Cream, and I just slipped it all back. This was 58 or something like that. And came out of the bathroom, and my mother just went, oh, whoa, what is this, you know. And, you know, and uh, we were going, she didn't have time to wash my hair, so we went over to uh, some friend's house, and they all went, whoa, what's this? And I got nicknamed Gus Goose Grease. <laughs> but 
it was really true that I had a sense of otherness. And part of that otherness, I realize now, is because I was growing up in an extremely dysfunctional home where, where actually, as Diane was saying earlier, we didn't really know the real rules, how you played out there. We knew just the family rules and the family craziness. But also was this sense that Diane was different and her girlfriends were different, and I thought more like Bobby and Ricky and those kinds of things. And I enjoyed playing sports and playing cowboys and being physically aggressive. And uh, I can remember, too, about seventh grade, my mother saying something to the effect about my going out on dates and wearing dresses. And we had this big fight in this McDonald's or whatever it was. I don't know if there were any yet. About how I was going to wear a dress on dates, and I said I didn't want to. One, I didn't want to go out on dates, but two, I didn't want to do this. But it occurred to me early on that how I wanted to be was not appropriate. My very self was not appropriate. The neighbors next door had a um, sister, Ginny. Virginia had a sister who was gay and her lover. And I didn't know what that word was. At that time, back in the 50s, it was called queer. They were queer. And uh, they were very nice. And um, she gave me a red blazer. <laughs> and I love that red blazer. I never, I wouldn't take that red blazer off. <laughs> and my mother's going, you're getting that red blazer off. And I said, no, I'm not. And I, got, I even hooked my grandmother into putting patches on it because it was all worn out. Because I really identified with this this woman and her lover, which I had no idea. What, and this woman, I knew she knew who I was, too. In any event, so becoming a teenager for me was agony because I was trying to be like my peers. I was trying to wear the dresses and the high heels and do the dances, and I did it. And I really genuinely liked the men I dated, the, the teenage men, I, boys or whatever, that I dated. I really and genuinely liked them. But when it came to, you know, thinking about being sexual, I was out the door and feeling really bad about myself. So somewhere around 13, 14, I can't remember, we met this, uh, I you know how you, you, you alcoholics find each other. I found this, this friend of mine in, in high school whose family looked a lot like mine. And her mother believed that if we were going to drink, we needed to drink at home so we weren't out on the road. So she would buy cases of beer for 15, 16, 17-year-old kids so we wouldn't be out drinking. And I just loved to go to Mary's house. And when I started going to Mary's house and started drinking, drinking for me was a good thing. It brought me out of myself. I felt peaceful. I felt happy. I could laugh. I felt in my element. I felt in this family, this other dysfunctional family, that comfortable. And so I spent a lot of time, as much time as I could, at Mary's drinking. And I ran away a couple times, too, over to Mary's house. But basically, always got dragged back. 
and managed to survive high school uh, and went on into college. And that first year of college was hell. I was afraid. I didn't know how to handle things. I didn't realize at the time that this insulated little family, um, and I didn't realize how scared I was, I think, coming out of that family. Because I had been the one that had been combative and called them on the bullshit. The problem was, is that taking all my time and my energy in trying to stay alive, I hadn't learned a lot of the things that a person needs just to be out into the world and to function in school. So I started drinking before I went to class. I started hanging out with the people at the university that that drank. We were in a little corner of the union, and they called us the animal farm because we were such pigs. And I found marijuana. And this was back in the class of 65. I'll date myself here. And a lot of drugs were going around campus, and a lot of support for using drugs was going on. Uh, and so I had bell bottoms and hair down to here and out to there and um, stopped washing for a while. And <laughs> it was very chick not to wash at the time. You had to be there. I mean, grubby was it, you know. The more grubby and rotty looking your bell bottoms were and the more raggedy, the better you were. You know, you had a certain, that was, anyway. And so I, I majored in college in beer, marijuana, and euchre. <laughs> and my grades showed it. So um, beside themselves with frustration, uh, my parents decided that I needed to go to a shrink. And I did. There was no doubt about it. I did, but it was like for probably not the reasons they thought. In any event, uh, I was actually, I had asked to go. I was feeling like I was losing control of my life, which was out of control. And I thought I, I should be able to handle these things. So I um, started to see the shrink. And I can remember the first time I sat down at the mental hygiene clinic. God awful name for a counseling thing. But I sat down at the mental hygiene clinic feeling very unclean and <laughs> said to this, said to this uh, psychologist, I think I'm a lesbian. And he said, hmm, I think we can cure that. <laughs> and so we tried. He spirited me away from the mental hygiene clinic into his private practice, and I commenced to uh, group therapy, individual therapy, and working part-time and let kind of school go by the wayside for a while. And the drinking is really starting to accelerate quite a bit. I had been one of those people that could really hold my liquor. I was the one that drove everybody home and explained to their parents why we were late. I was the one that could keep my head while I was drinking. I had great capacity as a young person. But something's starting to change. With the addition of the marijuana, I think probably was it. But 
I, could, I couldn't, I was unpredictable. That was the problem. Is I couldn't predict what I was going to do anymore. I, I'd go in to get drunk and couldn't, and I'd go in to stop and have a beer and be on the floor in three hours. So I started talking about this in therapy and with the psychologist, and he was in practice with a psychiatrist. And I was feeling all kinds of guilt feelings, and I was still at home trying to make them all better and different. And so they decided that I needed some tranquilizers. So now I'm on marijuana tranquilizers and alcohol. And oh boy, <laughs> it really. <laughs> Well, forget school. Um, I, um, I, it's a blur. It's a blur of real unhappiness, big mistakes. I can remember Landon, uh, my sister had just gotten married. She was pregnant, and I'd landed her house to crash because I was afraid to go home to mother. I mean, happy newlyweds, and there I, there, you know, there's the sister-in-law passed out on the couch. Fortunately, in his family, that was normal, too. <laughs> so, and Diana was normal to her, so we just, you know, I, had, I think I had a key to the apartment, practically. So, um, I really started to deteriorate pretty, pretty quickly, and I, I ended up taking a trip to the uh, mental ward. It was my turn. You know, in group, you, I don't know about how many of you went in group in the 70s, but it was my turn to be really depressed. And uh, they really loaded me on something in that hospital. I was really loaded on drugs, major tranquilizers. Uh, they, they could not understand why I was behaving the way I was behaving. In fact, I even went out on my first, you know, you get after two weeks after they get you good and drugged, they let you go out for four hours. And I went out with two friends of mine and had a pint of Seagram's probably and about eight beers on whatever those drugs were they gave me. And then I woke up in the morning tied down to the bed. I have got a clue yet to this day. I don't have a clue why that was, why, what happened. The thing that was interesting is when I started to come out of it, they weren't untying me very quickly. <laughs> And the doctor came in very serious, so I don't know what I did. He said, you know what you did? I said, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> yeah. But I was starting to get used to that, you know, not having a clue, because those, those blackouts were starting to come. And uh, he said, uh, you have some very serious emotional problems, and you drink too much, and when we... Resolve, 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 I think the word was, your emotional problems, you're going to be able to drink like anybody else. Isn't that the doctor you prayed for when you were in your cup? <laughs> huh? Isn't it? And he said, we're going to change your medication. <laughs> and I don't know what he gave me then, but I was gone down just on the medication for about a week. It was a god-awful time. I really felt I was suicidal. I didn't know what the problem was. And my life was a blur. And I went through all kinds of stupid jobs, and in and out of the house all the time. I, I literally could not function. I was just this walking pharmacy. Um, so I think when I was about 24 years old, 
I made my first call to AA. And I haven't got a clue yet why I did that. I think it was probably an ad on the television that I'd seen. And I went to my first AA meeting. And it was at a, a place in Maumee, church in Maumee. It was Sunday night, so, I, of course, it was, I was hungover. And um, they took me to this really nice meeting, nice lady, sat me down, said, don't compare, relate. And I did exactly the opposite. This really intense 40-something woman got up there, and I was only 24. And she's talked about being in a mental ward, which I could relate to. And she talked about being to jail. I hadn't been there yet. Um, she talked about losing her family. She talked about having her kids taken away from her. She talked about getting TB. And she all this stuff. And I thought, geez, I'm not that bad yet. So I thanked Marlene very much and said, um, I'll call you. <laughs> but I took the literature. And I started to read the literature, and what I thought, as usual, is I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to control this myself. I'm going to use these steps all by myself and talk to myself, which is becoming a regular thing. (laughs) And I'm going to fix me. And I'd read these steps, and I'm telling you, it's so bad, I could hardly concentrate. And Diane, Diane, I appreciate her not telling this much, but when I finally got into recovery, I used to have to read out loud because I really couldn't hear my, unless I heard it too, I couldn't get it. That's how bad I got. We'll get there. So I told Marlene thanks and took off and started drinking for two years of literal hell. Two years of literal hell. Drugs. Alcohol, it's a blur. I remember driving um, in blackouts. I remember parking on lawns. I remember losing my car. I remember waking up and saying, who are you and where are we? (laughs) You don't want to hear most girls don't do that. It was awful. My self-esteem was nothing. And I was afraid. I was literally afraid. I was afraid. I could not trust myself. And my friends were starting to desert. Fair enough. I I can understand it now. They didn't know what to do with me. I'd be fun for the first one or two drinks. Maybe three. And then I was just an idiot. I was gone. My brain would just go. I was working in the bars. I was stealing from employers. I was stealing them. I was stealing either by not going into work or I was stealing liquor off their bar on, at 2.30 when it was time to go home. I was stealing tips. I was doing anything to try to survive in this. And this is not the person I wanted to be. I was not going to be like those folks at home. I was so bad, my mother was mad at me and worried. My dad would just take me aside and say, just can't you have just a couple? So, make a long story short, um, two years almost to the day that I had called Marlene the first time, I had gone to register at the university. And it was an arduous process. It took all day. It was back when they had little computer cards that you had to stand in line, wait for to get. And as you stood in line, your class closed. <laughs> yeah, some other people have been through this. The modern age was not quite, (laughs) and I was pissed, 
and I had missed New Year's, and my sister wore my red velvet dress, which I don't know why I even cared. <laughs> but it was just another thing. You know how you go on it? Remember, you know, remember that thinking? It just, you needed something, and you'd go into that bar and say, meh, 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 meh. And people had started, the drinks started coming down the, down the bar. And I could remember just ton, like drinks lined up in front of me. Rum and Coke, I never usually drank those. And I can remember talking with people and laughing one minute and crying the next. I, I think I crawled a few times out to the bathroom. And this is the kind of bars I went to, but that, that was normal, too. <laughs> I remember throwing up and going back and drinking. Twice, I think I, I threw up. And couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. And uh, my friend who was the barmaid um, said, here are my keys. Don't let your grandma see you like this. Because I was living at my grandmother's at the time in her back bedroom. And this guy who was just a friend of mine said, look, you can't drive like this. You can't talk. You can't drive. So he was going to take me to a motel. And it wasn't romantic because I knew better. It was just because I was just, the people were trying to protect me. And uh, I don't. I, I somehow I ended back at Grandma's, and it was very early in the morning. Um, and I um, guess I didn't sleep that night. I was delusional. I, I think that's the word I would have to use. I was just delusional. I think I was this far from DTs. I just laid there with the bed turning and swimming, and 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 feeling confused and sick and sweaty and smelly and just not good. And when I went, when I got into the into the bathroom, I had my grandmother's like hundred thousand year old nightgown on. It was all ripped and holes and everything. And I tried to have uh, drink fruit punch and it's down the front. I thought I'd hurt myself. And I'm throwing up constantly. Now I'm just throwing up. I can't get. I can't leave the bathroom. I'm throwing up so much. And this this little woman is. This, grandma was about this high. She was always that, you know, she used to be about that high, but that's she, she was little. And I didn't know who she was. I didn't know who I was. I could not remember my name. I was frightened. I could not, I, I was sitting struggling in front of that bathroom mirror sink. Who, I should know my, I should know my name. I mean, not, you know. It was very frightening not to know your name, not to know who you are anymore. And I swore if I lived through that night that I would try another AA meeting. I had been to therapy and more drugs. I had tried, I finally had gotten a two-year degree in business. Nothing was making my life better. So um, I survived, obviously. I, I, I called Marlene back. I didn't even call AA directly. I called Marlene. I still had her number. And she couldn't take me to meetings. She was going to send uh, uh, these two women, Sandy, uh, Sandy N. and uh, Betty R., to pick me up. And they came. And they had to come to my sister's because I was afraid to be by myself. And it was probably some of the longest hours I've ever spent waiting for those people to come. And they picked me up. And this time the meeting we went to 
was in a smoke-filled, dingy little room with coffee, you know, big pots of coffee. It's called Downtown Group. It was at 1021 South Broadway. And the steps, the yellowed, yellowed steps and on one wall and the yellowed traditions are on the other. And that room was just blue with smoke. And it was filled with people. And they were happy. And they were laughing. And they were hugging each other. Yuck. <laughs> and they were saying, we're glad you're here so young. <laughs> I hate you people. I don't want to be here. I was... <laughs> I was, it was terrible. I can't tell you how, how much I hated what was happening to me. I thought, oh, God, I'm in a soup kitchen. I just thought, I might come to this. <laughs> and it was, with a bunch of wackos. These people are happy. I'm not happy. Well, I went through the meeting, and I think they were talking about growth and staying green and keep coming back. And I said, I'm not coming back to this place. But they were so nice, and they were talking about a higher power, and I didn't want any part of that. I was intellectually agnostic, and I thought, oh, God, you know, it's a bunch of Bible benders. This is going to be terrible. This is awful. I was very fortunate I was as sick as I was. That's what kept me here. What kept me here for the first year, 18 months of my sobriety, probably was total fear. Because I, I was one of those people that talks about that I did not think I could get recovery. I felt so bad. I didn't think I could understand it. I didn't think I could do it. And they said anybody who makes an, a willing, is, makes an honest attempt at these steps can get sober. And I didn't believe them because they did not know how crazy I was. And I didn't see any gay people but one. Thank God she was there. Beverly. Anybody know Beverly? But thank God she was there. Now, I still wasn't dealing with my sexuality yet. I was still dabbling with men, poor, poor guys that I dated, you know. But I wasn't very good for their self-esteem. Not their fault, I'm telling you. Yeah. Anyway. So when I heard people say, you know, to me, you're lucky you're as sick, you're lucky you're shaking still, you're lucky you're still here, I, I, I just thought they were the meanest people in the world. But they were right. Because if I'd have felt better the next day or two, I'd have been right out the door again. Because my thinking was so screwed up. Fortunately, I was sick for a good long time. I cold turkeyed uh, in my grandmother's back bedroom off of Thorazine and Jack Daniels. And I don't know if any of you know what Thorazine is. That stuff's tough. And I was so sick I didn't have the sense to go to a hospital. <laughs> and it was the old days back in 1974. And they intensely sponsored you. <laughs> and I had four or five dedicated sponsors that came after me, or I'd have never made it. They called me constantly. I hid from them. 
I'd turn the lights out and I'd tell him I'd go to a meeting with him and I'd turn the lights out in the house and pretend I wasn't there. <laughs> you know, it's not fun to admit this stuff, but I did this. I was so sick, I did this. But they kept coming back for me and I kept going back to meetings when I'd get my head on just a teeny bit straight. But I was having some difficult difficulties relating to these women in the program who were earnestly trying to help me because once I sobered up, I couldn't pretend I was heterosexual anymore. It took an awful lot of booze to make a person try to be something other than they are. And there were no gay AA meetings at the time. And, uh, but it took three or four years because I really had to get my sobriety before I really started to tackle that issue. And I was very fortunate to get the sponsor that I did, who, although not gay herself, understood that if the person's gay, a person's gay. And that that's okay. And about three years into my recovery, she encouraged me to go to Detroit to gay AA meetings on Woodward Avenue. And I did. And that was a godsend in my life. It really was. And just little by little, I remember it was just such an arduous process because I was so afraid of being out. I said, Jesus, first I'm an alcoholic, now I'm a lesbian. Oh, Jesus. You know. <laughs> What else? <laughs> What's next? <laughs> but slowly, um, through, the, through the, the help of the, the gay folks up in, in Detroit and with my sponsor here in town, I started to start to grapple with my sexual orientation. And it was a good thing. And I was really glad that, that, that I had the sponsor I did to help me through that. Or otherwise, I'm afraid I, I might have drank. Because once I started to come out, the heterosexual group that I had joined rejected me. And thinking back on it, a bunch of, you know, really Catholic-based heterosexual people who thought the only way to be is Catholic-based and heterosexual. That's what, that's what healthy is to them and middle class. You know, none of these things um, couldn't cope with that change in me, especially when I um, had started my first relationship, which was chaos beyond belief. But we go through our changes. <laughs> um, I was really frightened to not have my AA support, to not have the warmth and affection of the people who had become my AA family was terrifying. I, and and it, was, it was hurtful. And then to have, all, not knowing what that word is now, but having all these codependent stuff about abandonment issues. And then to have my family who was still angry at me just for being alcoholic. What a mess. But... Um, Beverly came through with a job for me at the YWCA. Beverly. <laughs> and I started out as a residence director for $25 a week in a room at the Y. 
thank God. You know, God gives you what you need when you need it. I just about shaved my head. I put on my bib overalls and T-shirts, and I stomped into the Y, and I definitely was going to have a heart attack, let alone the director of the Y. <laughs> but nah, that's what, that's what, that was my coming out about. And I managed to stay grounded in AA, and I think it's because of the sponsorship I had, and I think it was also because I was so sick. So the first couple years that I was in AA, I couldn't work. I was on welfare. I mean, I was a bad case. And my, I went to 18 meetings a week, though. I went day and night and midnights, and I loved it. I got buried in it. My sponsor said, Daryl, you can't get too sober. You're bad. You just you can't get too sober. And she was right. And she said, this is like putting money in the bank. There's going to come a time when you're going to have to have, when this recovery, you're going to have to pull, like, money out of the bank. You're going to have to pull on it, and it's got to be inside you or it's not going to happen. So I just immersed myself in recovery. And then I got the job. And that led to another job at the, at the Women's Halfway House. Again, you know, not just nights, being the night person, uh, more for room, board, and food, and about, I think that was $15 a night or something. And I remember the Y board raised my salary when they saw me getting food stamps in the lobby. <laughs> and they raised my salary, I swear this is true, they raised it just enough so I couldn't get the food stamps. That's all right, they're, you know, they're going to heaven or something. <laughs> But I, it's exactly what I needed. I needed to be, I needed to be in a safe space. I needed to be in a space where there were lesbians. I also needed to be in a space where I could get to my meetings. And I could be with the people who would still support me. And that is, there are some really wonderful heterosexual people in AA who don't give a hoot about what your orientation is, your races, or anything else. And those are the people that are the winners, and those are the people that I stuck with. And I had to leave my group. And what I realized is I didn't join another group ever again. Members of groups. But I've never been able to commit again to a group until this year. That's how much it hurt. And that's how scared I was of being rejected again. And it's taken a long time. And that, you know, is interesting. You know how the program works. That I kind of worked through with the help of my sister who pointed that out to me. Now that she's in recovery, she was kind of calling me on some of my stuff. And that's a real blessing. In any event, I um, moved into a communal living situation with eight other women. After the Y, I got became full-time and worked in the... Uh, became the director of the battered women's shelter at the Y after a few years. And I moved into this house with these other like-minded women, all heterosexual. But they were very accepting women. That was very cool. And it was really, a, it was a good living situation. It really was. And then I met um, my primary relationship, who was not an alcoholic. And... Um, we started dating, and I had just, the ink is just dry on this contract with all of these women. And um, we decide after a while that we're going to live together. And uh, 
So I have to back out of this contract. And, you know, I was the only woman to sell her partnership, but I was able to do that. But the reason I'm introducing this, this topic in terms of relationship things is that although my partner did not have a drinking problem, she had a violence problem. And I am working as the director of the shelter, and I am ignoring that problem. And the word battered lesbian is not in anybody's dictionary yet. And this is very, very familiar turf for me, and I thought it was my fault. And in spite of the fact that I am working in a battered women's shelter and teaching people and supervising people on how to work with battered women and counseling battered women, I am living as a battered woman. And I am denying it because I don't want to deal with it. And I denied it for 11 years. And it goes to show that in spite of not drinking in this program, that denial and illusion and codependency and whatever labels you want to put on it, we are very capable of um, even in recovery. That's why we strive for progress, not perfection. If perfection were required, I wouldn't be sober. And I can be just as goofy and off the mark, sober. The gift of recovery is that as soon as we realize we're in the wrong vein, whether it's one day, 11 days, 11 years, we are given the power to make the changes we need to make. That was the hard, that next to sobriety, that was the hardest thing I've ever done was, was leave my ex. Not because it wasn't for another woman. I was, there was no other woman on the horizon, so it wasn't the usual serial monogamy thing. It was the recognition that the, <laughs> well, you know what we do, you know, hello. You know, come on, girls. <laughs> you know how we do these things. But it, it, was, it was out of the recognition that the relationship was not healthy. And it was really scary for me, again, because I had moved to Vermont with her for her job. And I, this was rather incredible, too, because I couldn't, I couldn't get counseling in Vermont because I was working for the only counseling center. <laughs> it was nuts. Anyway, um, dealing with that issue has, been, has taken a few years for me to get to. Because until the age of 42 years old, I had never been really safe. Safe in that I was in a, that, and I had, the only way I could begin to be safe was first to just be with myself. And to go into counseling and try to figure out what in the heck, you know, how, can, how could I do that? How could I be so blind and, and dishonest with myself? And it's only through the most humane kind of therapy and 12 steps that I came to realize that when, when, a, when you're not in a safe environment, 
You can't make you can't make decisions on your own behalf. And it had to go to another level of acceptance. That that's what it is. That 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 you did. It's acceptance is extremely powerful in our lives. It's accepting the things I cannot change. My partner, no matter what I do, still has a temper problem. And my partner, no matter what I do, is not going to change her behavior for me. And that the only change is going to have to happen if, if I'm going to be safe is I have to remove myself from this relationship, which I did not want to do. But again, my experience of coming to recovery, I didn't want to come here either. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Sincerely the best thing. And I made that change. And sometimes when people ask me, I guess I I needed to say this out loud, because when people ask me, why did you leave PJ? I just say we have irreconcilable differences. Or I I keep still wanting to cover, and we're as sick as our secrets, and I, I just can't keep it secret. And again, a lot of that was protecting her. Because now I understand why I stayed in it as long as I did, is I simply didn't know you didn't do that in relationships. The first time it happened, I just, as bad as I felt, it was familiar. And it was my fault. And when she had affairs, it was my fault. If I hadn't done certain things, or if I was different, you know, I'd heard that a lot in my childhood. You know, if you girls were just different, or if you were just different, I wouldn't have to do this. It all sounded familiar. But recovery gives us different choices and gives us a sense of how the world really works in that we are not responsible for other people's choices. We are only responsible for our own. And that we keep moving, we keep growing in recovery towards what's healthy. I didn't get healthy overnight. I still got things I have to work on. It's going to be a lifetime process. There's no two ways about it. It is. T- I had, <laughs> had dinner with a friend of mine from high school I hadn't seen in a long time, and when, when, she, when I told her that I had been sober for 23 years, she said, my God, dear, that's been your, almost your whole adult life. Thank God. Because I wouldn't have had an adult life. I'd been wrapped around a pole or I'd have wrapped somebody else around a pole. I was crazy. And as bad, and it's been bad, as days that I've had, that, that familiar saying, as bad as it's been sober, it's still a lot better than it ever was drinking. And that's even trying to deal with some of the stuff that was happening in that relationship. And I have to be careful, too, because the, for me, this alcohol tendency that I have towards delusion is sometimes I still think about her in a positive light. And, you know, you know, nobody's totally, nobody's totally bad, and I have come to grips with that. Nobody's totally bad. That's what's so deceiving about being in a relationship that's violent, is these people aren't always hitting on you. They aren't always calling you names. It's sporadic. Sometimes they're being just quite loving and generous, and it's just, you don't know what to do. At least I didn't know what to do. That's the thing that's so, that was so bad is when I realized that, you know, somebody 
healthy would have walked out the first time it happened. And my, I had to grow through it. And I did grow through it. And it took as long as it took. It's just like my drinking. It took as long as it took to get to that point so that I could recover. And it's through the grace of God and the people in the program again that I, did, I have recovered. And you just day at a time. That's all you can do. So I think I'm, you know, our time's coming to an end. Um, that was a hard thing to share. The other hard thing to share was I was the one that leaped out of the back of the car and, and, and told the and told the cop pretty near that arresting my that arresting my sister. Now the thing that's horrible about that is they dropped the charges against me. And the, isn't that alcoholic stuff, though? Isn't it? The non-alcoholic goes to jail. The alcoholic gets out of it. Well, I didn't really. Feel, I had to pay some. I had to pay some prices down the road, but I want to make amends for that now, Diane. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but that was me. Anyway. I, I, I guess I'm running out of things to say. I just want to say I am so glad that I stayed in AA. I am so grateful to the people in AA. I am so grateful to my higher power. Um, it, it's, it's hard to find words for it because it just it's all feeling right here, and it's hard to say, so maybe I need to sit down. But I want to thank you all very much. You've been a very supportive, nice group of people to talk with. And I just want to say thank you.